Southbridge. Welcome. We are glad that you're here. If uh, this is your first time here, thanks for coming to the movie theater. We hope that you uh, leave encouraged, and we hope that you feel welcome to be here. And we ask one thing of our folks that are checking us out. If you just spend some time filling out the connection card, which you can find attached to your bulletin, we'd be really grateful just to hear, how did you hear about Southbridge? You can take that card out to the first-time guest kiosk where we have a gift for you. It's just our way of saying thank you for, for coming today, and we'd hope that you would return. And if this is your home church, welcome home. We're glad that you're back, and uh, we just want to make a big deal about Jesus. So we try to do that through song, through our fellowship together, even through eating donuts somehow. We try to do that, and then through teaching God's Word every week. And uh, this morning is no different. From time to time, people ask, um, what do you have midweek where people could come together and get to know each other better? And we have some things. Uh, and the first is of community groups. We offer community groups, which are small groups that meet in people's homes. They usually discuss um, a sermon-based curriculum to talk about how to put into practice the thing we just heard on Sunday and begin doing life together. So when there's hospital visits, uh, when a baby is born, or when tragedy strikes, on the highs and lows of life, these people do life together so as to experience being the church, not just attending something. And from time to time, we just have other events and opportunities to learn, like Secret Church coming up in a couple of weeks. And you can learn of all these things by reading your bulletin. People put these together on purpose for you to read. And also, if you're interested in uh, e-news that we have, it's called um, Southbridge Happenings. You can just indicate that on your connection card, drop it in the offering box and say, hey, I want to make sure I get that email. Um, this Tuesday night, we have a meeting for men called the Fearless, Fearless Forum. We do these maybe quarterly um, as the Lord seeks to uh, just kind of organically rise in people's lives to offer such a meeting where men come together. We're talking about basically where, where life and faith intersect. A couple guys will be sharing the story. You don't want to miss it. And if love language is food for you, we'll have food. So you should be loved. And that's Tuesday night. Um, Celebrate Recovery meets every Thursday night at the office. So Tuesday night this week is at the office. Every Thursday night at the office is Celebrate Recovery. Just working through God's word, through the Beatitudes with other people that are trying to overcome hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And I participated in it looking through um, how can I make sure that the Lord is the center of my life and people aren't. I have a problem with the Christian version of it's people-pleasing. God calls it idolatry. So I work through Celebrate Recovery, so I invite you to check it out. It's done it's just been a great blessing for community and, and for, for my life. We're going to continue and conclude our series in Galatians this morning. And uh, we need God's help. So will you pray with me? Let me pray. Lord, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for each person that's here. It's, uh, it's wonderful, Lord, to encounter your spirit as your spirit uh, resides within each person here that's come to know you as Jesus, uh, as their Savior. And Lord, we just ask that you'd be our teacher this morning. Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, to see ourselves for who we really are, to catch a glimpse of who you are. And Lord, would you just enable us to have a desire to allow you to be the master surgeon in our hearts, doing surgery in our lives, that you would cut out and root out anything that's hindering our followership of you. And Lord, that you would plant within us your character, your spirit, growing ever more so that we can be a blessing to others and for your glory. God, do this through your word, please. We, we just pray expectingly. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Galatians chapter 6, and really what we're going to find out today as we conclude it is just basically what we're gonna, a rule of life. Paul, uh, we've learned through Galatians, is really trying to help these people, people of Galatia, a church that he planted along with many others, has problems. And the reason why the church has problems is because there's people in it, and people are messy. And so Paul is trying to help them, and he's concluding some of his thoughts in this letter, this love letter he's writing to them, by sharing an old proverb with them, a rule of life. But I just want to start off by 
acknowledging the fact that we all have rules of life, rules that we live by, some that are by nature, some that are placed upon us by family, and some that we have for ourselves. You probably know most of them, so let's just see how well we do. What goes up must come down, a rule of life. We uh, all, sadly, are a part of that. If it's not broke, don't fix it. How did you know? Yeah, you know these rules. Do unto others as you would want them to have, uh, have them do to you. The negative version is don't do. Jesus Christ says it in the positive because he wants us to be proactive. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. I didn't take physics and I'm a B-minus student, so I didn't really know that one. But I'd ask Jed, our worship pastor, who's got multiple. He doesn't want me talking about him. He's just smart. He helped me with that one. This is one that I, that, uh, that I see um, really prevalent in life. If you build it, they will come. It's so true with church buildings. We don't have one yet. We have a church. However, uh, we're told that if we build a building, then people will come together. But I'm looking around. This looks like there's people here. I can kind of see you. If mama ain't happy, how do you know that bad grammar at all? Is it true? Is that a rule of life? We have these rules of life, some that are pushed, pushed upon us because of nature, science, the world in which we live, the rules that the world is uh, being run by, and some upon ourselves. Of look, you got to please number one. you got to look out for number one if no one else is. We used to have a basically a rule, uh, basically an implied rule growing up that if no one's going to serve, we're going to serve. These rules are upon us. And Paul is concluding this love letter to these people in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 6. So turn there if you'd like. And just a reminder, just as a refresher, as we conclude this series, we'll be in Galatians chapter 6 today. But what we've learned is basically the big idea of the story of this letter is that these people needed to know, just as we need to know, that salvation comes through God's grace alone, by faith. We cross that line of faith to trust in Jesus Christ and his works and who he is on our behalf, by, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul is having to write this to these people that he helped lead to Christ because people are coming behind his teaching and telling that you need to do a little bit more. It's Jesus plus doing the old customs that will equal heaven someday or a good life. And Paul is saying, no. No, Jesus is taking care of the heaven issues, the eternal life issues, trust in him. So a popular rule of life that the people of Galatia were choosing, the Christians were choosing, was, listen, we got to keep doing more stuff so that God will like us or so that we can make sure to secure our spot of so many spots available in heaven. But there was another rule, another rule of life that Paul is really trying to address within the people that he loves so much. And it's this idea, well, if Jesus has done all the work, then it doesn't matter how I live. If I'm going to heaven, and Jesus made it possible to go to heaven, then there's nothing I can undo to go to heaven, so therefore it doesn't matter how I live. And Paul, because he loves these people so much, is not going to let that go undressed, unaddressed. And so here we are, Galatians chapter 6, we're going to be verse 7, and he's trying to illustrate basically his heartfelt instruction upon these two rules by sharing a classic proverb, a proverb that you can find throughout the scriptures and outside of the context of scripture, a rule of life, if you will. Let's look at, we'll just do verse to verse in the middle of chapter 6 as we come to the, basically the final uh, close of his love letter. Verse 7, chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And that is a rule of life. The rule of life is that a person reaps what they sow. 
Now, Paul, in, up to this point, like we studied last week, he's been addressing the conflict that people have in their lives, especially people that want to follow Jesus, but also please themselves. And he talked about not participating in the things that so basically to the flesh. And we looked at this list that wasn't exhaustive, but a list of things that people do participate in that aren't people that are following Jesus. In fact, he says some really intense stuff by saying people that practice this, meaning live a lifestyle of this, they're not heaven-bound. And then he concludes chapter 5 with, but, but the Spirit, when the Spirit of God resides in people, which is also the way that we have the power to even go to heaven, that we have the eternal life because the Holy Spirit gives it, if we go to cultivate a life with him, what happens is God's character. And so Paul's already encouraged them, but there's this conflict. And then the beginning of chapter 6, he says, okay, in light of the conflict, this is how you should engage one another. And he begins by, hey, for those of you that are spiritual, try to con- confront people that are in sin because you love them and make sure you don't fall into the same sin. And how well does that go for people usually? The person being confronted says, don't judge me. And the person that said, I'm not trying to judge you, I'm trying to help. Then he continues on by talking more about the conflict we have with people and talking about helping carry for their burdens, but each person has the burden of their own. And then he comes to this verse. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. In the rule of life, a man reaps what he sows. A person reaps what he sows. Now we know that whatever, we, whatever seed we put in the ground, eventually, if nurtured, that seed produces the fruit of that seed, right? We put apples in seeds in the ground. We hope that will happen if we nurture that. As that will happen, we'll have apple trees, oranges, orange trees, um, snicker, Snickers trees, okay? Yeah. I got a a D minus on my first science test in college, just so you know. This is how nature works by God's design. And Paul is saying that applies, that applies, um, this rule applies to the way all people live. And why is he writing this? We have to start from the beginning of the verse. He says, do not be deceived. And why would he write to them about not being deceived? He's already said that they've been fooled, fooled by teachers that came after them, fooled in their, their misunderstanding of how God's grace works. And now he believes, as he's writing them, they've been fooled, they've been deceived into thinking that this rule doesn't apply. And so the deception was, was believed by some in Galatia that is the lie that I can do whatever I want without being held accountable for what I've done. And Paul is saying, through an old rule of life, that that belief totally confuses reality. That the rule stands. And Paul says, in light of this rule of life, that we ought not be deceived. The rule still stands and God cannot be mocked. Now, the word for mocked is is a very descriptive word in the Greek language. It means to sneer at, to turn your nose up at. Like you're above. To show contempt for or to ridicule. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been mocked like that? Let me ask you another question. Did any of you ever go to elementary school? Or worse, middle school? Where you're being mocked basically for, you can be mocked for not doing anything and doing everything. Didn't wear the right clothes, hair's not right, don't have the right possessions. I can remember so badly when I was in middle school, I wanted these tennis shoes I was sharing with the first of us just kind of just came to my mind. I wanted Jordans so bad. Jordans is, uh, would mean, is the slang we'd say for Michael Jordan's tennis shoes. And back then, well, let me set it up by talking a little bit about economics. Back then, kids, a dollar was equal to about $100 today. <laughs> um, also like a C- minus in economics in high school. And I wanted these shoes so bad because people that have these shoes are in, are cool. I never would have said that out loud, I want to be cool. But that's probably how I felt. And every year getting new basketball shoes with my parents. And my dad was in Christian education and my mom worked out of an office. And they, for some reason, didn't think it was good stewardship to buy $120 shoes for their sixth grade son, who was going pro. 
Because you have to justify the expense somehow, right? I don't know. I wanted these shoes so bad, so what I would do is I'd go and try to find, and it was such a great tension moment. Like, why won't my parents give it to me? And they're trying to be, do well and do right. So I'd pick shoes that most resemble Jordan's and then try to wear those to practice in the games and would get ridiculed. They would pick out my attempt. If you've lived life, you've probably been mocked. And if you haven't been mocked, probably because you were the mocker. But that's a different message. <laughs> and it's terrible. And it's, it, it, it sucks life from us. It doesn't give life. All of us experience being mocked at some point in our life. The scriptures say that God will not be mocked. It's not that he hasn't been. I mean, there are plenty of biblical examples. Goliath, you remember the story of David and Goliath? And Goliath is shouting out these things against God and his people. King Herod, the same. Ananias and Sapphira on the, on the book of Acts lie about their religious efforts. The scriptures are clear that God will not be mocked. And what that phrase means is that it means that God will not let it go unaddressed. I mean, you probably grew up with friends that you could pull jokes on over them and they didn't even know they were being mocked. That doesn't work with God. He's, he's pretty smart. And the phrase God cannot be mocked emphasizes the immutable rule of God. You reap what you sow. It's, it's a belief It's a belief that says to self, God is wrong and I am right. God, you're foolish and I'm wise. Your ways are a lie, God, and my ways are the truth. That is what's believed by the person who's been deceived, that the rule of life does not exist. And it's an attempt at turning up a nose at God. I'm bigger than God. And Paul's being very clear with the people that he loves so much. It's not going to work with God. The truth is that although people may fool themselves into thinking that there are no consequences for actions, God cannot be fooled. He remembers the rule that he put in place. And Paul is reminding and warning his readers a rule of life that applies to all people. And here's another rule of life. And maybe you know it. I tried to find the origin of it, maybe 1500s, maybe earlier. This warning is coming from Paul out of a heart for them. He's not judging them. He was trying to help them because he's for them. And so he's warning them. And here's the rule of life. And to be forewarned is to be forearmed. To receive a warning early before the consequences is to be armed with the truth so as to reconsider reality. He's writing this because he loves them. The truth is that we are all sowing because we are all living, meaning we make choices, we take action in life. But the question then is, to what end are we sowing? And there are two options. So let's look at Scripture. We're going to spend most of our time in this verse. Verse 8a, we'll look at the first part. Two kinds of sowing. Verse 8. The one who sows to please his simple nature, from that nature will reap destruction. Your translation might say, Corruption. The first sowing option then is to sow to our sinful nature. The sin nature we looked at last week, or the flesh, not just necessarily the flesh that we're made up of, but the immaterial part of us too, the born desire to be in control, to call the shots, to satisfy ourselves, to please ourselves, to follow our own wisdoms. Christians will be in conflict with their sin nature until the day they see Jesus Christ face to face. So sowing to the flesh is characterized by a life that participates in the kind of things that we looked at last week. I'll read it for you. They won't be on the screen, but I'll read it for you. This is um, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. The acts of the simple nature are obvious. We live in a time where people aren't sure what's obvious, what's right or wrong. But Paul is saying it's obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. 
I warn you, as I did before, those that live like this, meaning have a lifestyle, a practice of, with no repentance in life, no conviction in life of such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. No one gets through that list, and it's not even an exhaustive list. However, the difference is a life practiced by it versus a life that's repenting of those practices or participation in those things. Slowing to the flesh is characterized kind of like the things that we do to please ourselves when we act as though we're the God of our own lives. However, flesh can also mean this. It can mean our religious action by our strength, which is called legalism. Like our way of trying to earn God's grace. You can't earn grace when grace is free. So we try to do these works to earn it. That's out of the flesh. We're trying to say, God, you're not good enough. Jesus plus my good things and how good I am will equal heaven boundness someday. So it's whatever I think I can do in my own strength and in my own power to make myself righteous. That is the flesh. That is why Paul can say in verse 21, those that live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is recorded as saying about people that did good things in life, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. They'll say that Jesus is the Lord. Did we not do all these amazing things in your life? You even drive out demons? Didn't we teach Sunday school? Didn't we go on mission trips? Didn't we give money to these people? And Jesus says back, I never knew you. How's that possible? It's because the people that are trying to do those good things are doing them with the motive of trying to save themselves as opposed to recognizing that Jesus is the Savior. Therefore, I live in light of that reality. And Paul's saying, that's sowing to the flesh. Sowing to the sinful nature will produce what? A harvest of destruction. The word destruction or corruption, as your translation might say it, means, it literally means this, from going, better, from, going from better to worse. In the word picture that people would have had when they received this letter in the original language would have been a word picture of like um, decaying food. When I learned about that this week and studying the simple words and the different words of this letter as the way that the people would have received it in Galatia, the first thing that came to my mind when I was thinking about decaying food is, um, well, we have a minivan and we have four kids. And from time to time when we go to clean it out every other year, we find like um, things that used to be an apple, but now it's like a, um, like a sun-dried apple or like grapes are now raisins kind of stuff. Um, you find McDonald's french fries, but those don't decompose because that's not really potato, so it doesn't work for this illustration. <laughs> but bad things like hamburger, whole, I mean, chicken nuggets, those stay the same too, by the way. <laughs> but bad things. Decaying food is bad. And what Paul is saying and illustrating to these people are for those that sow to the sinful nature, sow to the flesh, you try to live to please yourself. You try to live to make your way happen because you think you're the king or queen of this world and of your life. What you'll experience is decay. Have you experienced that? Let's test the truth. Have you experienced this rule of life? Because the rule is sow to the flesh, reap destruction. That's the simple way. If we follow the rule of life, do what feels good, or I can do whatever I want without consequences, we are going to experience a slow decay. So the rule applied here is if we sow sin, we reap destruction. It's quite obvious how to go about sowing to the flesh, isn't it? I mean, we simply do what we feel like doing. And the truth is I have no green thumb. I don't know anything about ag. I don't have an ag background. There's a friend I have at church that's a genius in it. I can't even, like, I can't grow grass in my yard. I say this, like, every time I preach in the spring, I think. <laughs> It's the same message. I borrow my neighbor's equipment and try to do it, and there's nothing. I'm not good at it. But the thing I don't need help learning, the thing that I am an expert in, is that knowing that when I sow seed, when I do actions or have thoughts that are about pleasing myself, for myself to gratify the wrong, the opposite God things, 
destruction comes into my life. You know, isn't it interesting that children don't need to be trained on how to sin? We're all good at farming sin. We're all good at sowing that. I never taught my children to lie, and yet they've lied. I've never lied to them that I know of. I don't teach my children how to hit. I don't, I don't hit them. Yesterday, my son um, threw sunglasses at his sister on purpose. And my wife and I had somewhat of a conversation, maybe a disagreement, about if it was on purpose or not. So I went right to him, and he said yes. And he said he was playing Angry Birds with her, throwing the gla- she was the building trying to knock down. <laughs> so to the point of the message is that video games are bad. Let's pray. Yeah. I, never, I didn't teach him to do that. However, he inherited by being born of a man and I a sinful nature, which we inherited in turn from Adam. The scriptures tell us that. It's no surprise that sowing to the flesh happens all the time. I think we can all agree that. What many are surprised by, though, are the consequences. We're deceived into thinking that the rule doesn't exist. That you, and the truth is that you can't sow to the flesh all day long and then complain when you reap a harvest of corruption in your life. What, did, what do we expect? You, you know, we run into friends and family, strangers all the time. You can see this on TV by people's testimonies. We, we thought there was a good business deal and we didn't have the money, but we put it on credit anyway. Then all went to, We don't know how we got in this position. Yeah, you just made choices. You spent money you didn't have and here you are. I go to all-you-can-eat um, you know, ice cream Sunday buffet every Friday night, and now I've got all these problems in my body. I don't know how this happened. No, I was with you. <laughs> if people sin against their bodies, sooner or later they will pay with ruined health. Sexual sin leads to problems, not only in our own lives. It's a sin against their own bodies. Scripture says, Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're supposed to honor God with our bodies if we're in Christ but also then brings decay and wreaks havoc in the life of others. Dietary sin does the same. If people sin against their loved ones, which we chiefly do, right? We seem to hurt those, the people that we say we love the most. We seem to hurt them the most. If we sin against people that are our loved ones, sooner or later someone's heart's going to get broken. We can't be surprised. Well, I'm married, but then there's this lady at work, and she was really nice, and she just really could understand me, and she recently went through a separation. I was just from be friends, and we didn't know how it happened. But now I've lost my ex-wife and all and my kids and all this stuff. I don't know how it happened. You, you, you made a choice. You sowed to yourself. But we act, we act surprised. And the reason why we act surprised is because we've been deceived into thinking that the rule doesn't exist. We bank on God's grace so as to give us permission to do what we want to do. Sometime. Our sin directly affects others around us. And we can't be surprised. It's a, it's a rule of life, the scriptures say. Sadly, some people think that since they aren't currently see, seeing destructive consequences for their choices, are you listening? That maybe just, just maybe they never will. They're thinking that maybe God's forgotten about them. He's all-knowing, but not all-knowing about me. And so just like in middle school, when you pass a note, when you're allowed to pass notes, I guess they do texting now. I don't know what that is. But we used to like write on um, papers made from trees. Never mind. So... We used to do this, and sometimes you get away with it, right? And sometimes you wouldn't. You hope it go through because you wanted to say yes, not maybe, about going together, even though you're not going anywhere. <laughs> sometimes you get caught, and sometimes you don't. And here's the deal. We act like that with God. Sometimes we think he's watching, sometimes he's not. Let me tell you this. He's watching. Why? Because he loves you. He's not trying to lord over you. He's the Lord. 
He's not a cosmic killjoy. He desires to be your heavenly father, way better than your awesome father that you had or the terrible one that you had. And yet we act like it doesn't count. The rule doesn't exist. And then we're deceived. We're terribly deceived. Still some, even worse than some professing Christians will say, if I have Christ and the promise of heaven, and if there are no regrets in heaven, no tears in heaven, then what does it matter how I now live? Do you flow with that? If I have heaven bound, why does it matter how I live? Because I can't lose it. Southbridge, you would teach that you can't lose your salvation if you're in God's family, so what does it matter how I live? Are you ready for the answer? This might be the only note you take. And this is the note that I'm filtering my life through. It matters how we live. How we live matters because it matters to God. It matters to God, and if that's not compelling enough, then I'm not so sure salvation rests in that heart. I don't have to call that shot. But I would be suspect. I would challenge you to suspect yourself. The person that's been won over by Christ and his grace wants to please to the, his spirit. And the person saying, hey, I'm going to heaven. I can do what I want. That person's not desiring to please the spirit, so there's a problem. For the person who thinks they're heaven-bound, but also believes that God doesn't care about how one lives and denies the reality of the sowing and reaping rule of life, is deceived. Please turn. God will not be mocked. He will not reverse the rule of life. And actions have consequences. You can't fool God into thinking that you and him are cool. Me and God are at peace with what I've done, even though I know it's against his word and against all the things that he teaches in God's word and how all my friends that are in Christ would say God's word says it, but we're at peace with what I've done. No. That's sin. It's justifying sin and it's wrong. And anyone that will tell you otherwise is placating to you and they're not a real friend. To sin and think that we can live as we please, as I please, now that I've got some fire insurance from Jesus would signify that he's not my king. And if Christ is not my king, I'm not in the kingdom. And there's so much at stake, isn't there? If we sow to the flesh, we reap destruction. Please, if you've been deceived in such a way, if you think God's cool with your sin, if you think there's no consequences for that, please, please repent and turn. In time, there will be a harvest. Please, today is the day to repent and turn from that. There's, just, there's too much at stake. And that's what it looks like to sow to the flesh. And that's why it's so important that Paul is writing to these people that he loves and why we would talk about such things for our community of Raleigh and Durham and all the cities around. There's, there's, too, there's too much at stake. But there's another way to sow. Did you read ahead? Did you cheat already? Look at ver- verse 8 again, part B. The one who sows to please the sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. The rule here is applied as this. Sow the spirit, reap eternal reward. So if we sow, to the, sow sin, reap destruction, sow to the spirit, sow the spirit, reap eternal reward. The question then is how do I do this, isn't it? And we looked at it a little bit last week. Sowing to the spirit begins with an understanding that I cannot make myself righteous or holy. And continues by investing our lives in those things that are spiritual or eternal. And what could that be, we need to ask then? What are the things that are eternal? Souls and God. So this investment is achieved through the Spirit of God and not through our flesh. It's the same as the phrase, so the Spirit is the same as walking by the Spirit, Galatians 5.18, or abiding in Christ and His Word, that's John chapter 15, verse 7, or walking in Christ, Col- uh, Colossians 2.6. 
It's living for what brings God pleasure over what satisfies our sinful nature. Simply put then, sowing to the Spirit is being, um, being preoccupied with the things that God is about and that which produces his character in our lives. For the Christian that desires and is mandated to sow to the Spirit, it's being preoccupied with the things that God is about and that which produces his character in our lives. And what is his character? Well, we looked at it last week. I'll read it for you. It won't be on the screen, but listen carefully. It's just in the chapter previous. But the fruit of the Spirit, a byproduct of God in your life as you grow in your relationship with him is this, love. Not I like what others do for me. Love meaning a yielding to another's best interest. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Some people translate it as meekness, which is power under control or in restraint, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And the rule of life applies that if you participate in those things that cultivate that kind of fruit, you'll find life. You'll find life. See, it's allowing the Spirit, sowing to the Spirit is allowing the Spirit to enable us to to love the unlovely. Have you been in that situation? (laughs) To yield to another's best interest when it kind of went against your flesh to to do that? See, it's the Holy Spirit doing it in our lives. We step forward in obedience because Jesus says those that love him, obey him. He gets to define what it means to love him, not us. We step forward to do this God-sized thing of loving someone who's unlovely, who's been unlovely to us. Then his spirit who resides in those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, by God's grace, his spirit comes through and enables us to love with a God kind of love. It's practicing, it's, it's sowing, it's forgiving the seemingly unforgivable that's God's style. It's, it's to own joy in less than pleasant circumstances. It's to, it's to freely choose peace in when our flesh wants, when we want to be anxious. Anyone could go pro at anxiety? I'm awesome at it. That's another way of saying I'm awesome at sin. It's practicing patience when anger and frustration is what your flesh desires. Patience might be one of the toughest fruits to cultivate, don't you think? Because you have to be like in impatient experiences or circumstances to cultivate it. Be careful if you pray and ask God for patience. He'll come through. And when we don't sow to the Spirit, we don't experience the fruit of His presence in our lives. And that is why when Christians are in sin, we experience the battle we talked about last week, the conflict between our sinful nature and God's Spirit within us. Let me pause on that for a moment. If anyone here has secret sin, the kind of sin that you're afraid you'll be caught, what you probably experience, I'm guessing, is paranoia that you think everyone is looking at you because you're the only one in that kind of sin, the accuser's telling you. Paranoia is the opposite of peace. And God's peace and paranoia will not reside in the same place. See, if you don't sow to the flesh and have that secret sin, what you're doing is you're going to be sowing into the flesh, which means you'll have peace. But there's not going to be peace if you've got paranoia over your secret sin. So I'll challenge you this. Don't try to find peace and also have your sin. Get rid of the sin, then you'll have peace. No one's looking out for you. No one's trying to expose you. But God always exposes, lovingly exposes those that are in his family. So I want to challenge you with this. If you've got secrets in your life, go to God and tell him that and agree with him. That's called repentance. That's probably a sign that you're in the kingdom. But then tell a friend because if you really want help from it, if you really want rescued from it, then tell somebody else. You can go to God all you want by yourself and ask him to root it out. But a lot of times what he does is he'll use someone else that you tell and you'll find out that they're not going to run away from you because you thought your sin was so bad. They're staring you face to face and saying, okay, how are we going to get through this? Because that's what good Christian friends do. Thank you for confessing that to me. The Holy Spirit's bigger than this, and how are we going to roll together now? 
you probably suspected that they would run from you because you're so bad, because that's maybe what you do to somebody else. Sowing to the Spirit reaps God's life, an eternal reward in our life, his character, more of his character in our life. Sowing to the flesh reaps destruction. So what is the harvest then? What is the reaping of the sowing of the Spirit? What does the Bible tell us? Look at it again. We'll have to park here and spend some time here. Part B again. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now when you read that, and maybe you've known this scripture for a long time, when you hear that, does that kind of sound like he's saying that people, does it sound to you that people earn eternal life by doing the right kind of spiritual farming? Doesn't it sound like that? If you do this, then you get this. See, we know that much of what Paul has written up to this point, and we have to park on this for a little bit to make sure we're very clear. And I've spent a lot of time on that this the last couple of weeks and focusing on this. Is Paul like contradicting himself? Because most of Paul's letters undoing the heretical teaching that you earn salvation by being good enough. But how good would be good enough? 51% good? 78% good? What if it was 79% good and you were at 78? Then we would say God's not just because I was only one point off and you're grading on a curve and we've got some really special people in our church that are so blameless. Paul's already, this whole letter has really been about undoing that kind of teaching. So now, why would he write that you earn eternal life by doing good? Are we misreading or misunderstanding something? Because the scripture clearly teaches that salvation is a free gift. Listen to these references that talk about this. It's John 3.16, it's 4.10, John 4.24, Romans 3.25, and 4.5, Galatians 2.16, 3.6-14, Ephesians 2.8 and 9, Titus 3.5-7, Hebrews 10.1-18, and Revelation chapter 22. All teach that salvation is a free gift of God by his grace through faith in Christ, that Jesus did the work. So now he writes this, and doesn't it seem confusing? See, furthermore, the Bible tells us that people are included in Christ and his kingdom when they hear the gospel and are moved to forsake their sin and put their faith in Christ for forgiveness and begin to walk with him, to walk by faith in his promise and in his spirit and his power. So that would mean that our only grounds of acceptance in Christ is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ made on our behalf. That's it. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that all who are led by the Spirit of God, those that would be led to sow to the Spirit, those that would be inclined to do so, are called the sons of God. They're adopted into God's family, Romans 8 tells us. In fact, Galatians says the same thing. True followers of Jesus, people adopted into God's family, as Galatians 4 puts it, possess by God's Spirit a new God-given desire to, within to sow to please the Spirit. So Paul, what are you talking about how we earn this then? Or we get this. We get this eternal life. Before we can answer that, we need to say this. People that are heaven-bound then, people that are heaven-bound people increasingly reflect their heaven-boundness, which would be a tobias, I don't know if that's a real word, their heaven-boundness by how they live and what they sell. They're not heaven-bound people because they're so awesome. They're heaven-bound because Jesus is awesome, and they reflect their new position or their new, their new place by how they live. Did you catch the difference? So it is true that you reap eternal life because you're reaping eternal life. People that sow to the Spirit are people that are already going to heaven, that already have eternal life. The reaping of this connection then, our connection to God, is eternal life both in quantity, thus the word eternal, or forever. It doesn't mean that you won't die because it's appointed that each person would die once. What it means is after this physical death, there's eternal life in the presence of God. 
not only in quantity, but also, and that begins now, eternal life does, not just in heaven someday, but also in uh, quality. His holiness now growing in us. Our life now is different. The quality of our life is different. In fact, I think the book of John calls it like the abundant life. The quality of our life is different. Not that we have more possessions. In fact, we probably will have less because we're so generous, supposedly. But it's now his character changing our lives, which means that our, the quality of our life is changing us. And that begins now. So Paul is saying this. If you sow to the Spirit, what you harvest is that which lasts forever. God's character in your life. However, the truth is that not every believer is perfectly reflecting the quality of the eternal life that is given by the Spirit. And that's why Paul is desperate for his friends, his friends that he's writing to. See, any sin in our life that robs us of the enjoyment of the life or spiritual rewards that God grows in our life, even on this side of heaven, is going to hinder us from reaping that eternal life that begins now. Paranoia versus peace, anger versus patience, hopelessness versus joy. I heard an awesome quote, and I don't know who this is for today. I didn't share it the first service, but I get a lot of anxiety over tough meetings with people. What to say, how to say it, what's going to happen, I have no control over it. Then I believe the lie that's on me to make sure it goes well. So I'm really working hard to these things. And I heard this awesome quote about that. Fear is hope with no vision. Here's my vision in those meetings. I know it's going to go bad. That's the best I can see. So... I don't have any, any hope for how it's going to go. I've already decided it's going to go bad. That's fear. And did you know that the Bible says this, that those that have the Spirit of God, that perfect love drives out fear? So what's happening is that the, the, the fruit of love is, I'm in the, my anxieties, my deciding that it's going to go bad, it's in the way of that being cultivated in my life. It's actually a trust issue now between me and God. And who's right, God or me? Him. He's right. So in light of this rule of life, there's one more verse, or two more. And Paul has talked heavy then about sowing and reaping, and the two kinds of sowing and the two kind of harvests. And it's, for me, when I was working through it, it's, it's kind of heavy. I don't quite catch the great joy that comes from the eternal life because I'm still thinking about how bad I might be sowing to the flesh. <laughs> and I think about the friends and loved ones I have that say God's cool with their sin. And that sends me into despair because I don't, the future doesn't look good. But then Paul, in light of this rule of life, the two kinds of harvests, Paul brings a word of encouragement to those that desire them to live for God's glory. So look at the next verse, verse 9, will you? He says then, in light of the sowing and reaping principle and rule, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, that means as God's appointed time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And Paul's write letters to the churches and to um, the pastoral letters that he writes, like First and Second Timothy and Titus, talk often about like perseverance and keep going. It meant a lot to him to keep going for some reason. He was convinced that it was incumbent upon us to keep going. It was fear mixed with hope that he did that, a, a godly fear of why we need to keep going. And then he just sends these words of encouragement. Let us not become weary in doing good. Isn't it true that even when attempting to live to please God, that sometimes we really aren't sure what difference we're making. We aren't sure who's reaping what when we're trying to sow to the Spirit. We don't see what we want to see. Isn't it true that we become discouraged? And I wonder if Paul's writing for himself as he's much for these people. A guy that's been in prison over and over again and shipwrecked and whipped and has had every church that he plants has problems because there's people in every one of them. 
He's in chains for Christ, and we would probably believe, like, well, if I'm leading to Jesus, then God would never put me in that situation. But over and over again, God's people find martyrdom in their life. And Have you ever faced discouragement in doing good and not seeing the fruit that you thought you'd see by now? Maybe you know this story. There's a story of this missionary, William Carey, the first modern missionary to India. He made his arrival to India starting in 1793, and he preached the gospel to anybody that would listen. He just had a heart for the people of India, a people that were hoping to live good enough lives so that the next life was better. And it's a loss. It's always a loss because you can't know how you're doing and where the scale is. And he just had a heart and love for these people. He just wanted them to know the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be set free from such terrible, terrible teaching and the burden of that teaching. However, as he kept preaching, no one was responding. No one agreed. And he kept, kept going, and he went on this, this way for seven years. I wonder what it would be like today if William Carey was like sent out by a church that supported him financially, and he's supposed to give reports back monthly of all the great things because we need to know if our money's doing a good job. And he'd have nothing to report. No um, fruit to report other than the fruit of his obedience. And I wonder how people would judge how well he's doing. And then in time, in in the year 1800, he was privileged to, to baptize a person who had now newly professed Christ as their Savior, his friend. He had the privilege of baptizing him in the Ganges River. Have you been a, bar, a, a, a part of something or about something for seven years and you're not sure what's going to happen? Do you have a wayward child that you've been, you, you, you're asking, Lord, how much longer must I ask you? Have you been working with your parents and you want to see your parents come to know Christ you just don't know what's going to happen because it's up to you to convince them, you think. You're not sure. You've been wanting to see this certain ministry begin and you've got a love for it, but you can't get finances for it and you're not sure, but you think God's put it in your heart, but you don't know what's going to happen and you're, you're growing weary. Or every week you go and you, you want to share the gospel with the people that don't have a home but also need food, so you want to give them food and also share the gospel that's in your life, but you're not sure if it matters. It doesn't make a difference. How does giving soup help? Have you become weary? Paul anticipates this. See, there's times that we labor and labor in doing good and nothing externally indicates that we are having success in what we're doing. We face the struggle of losing heart in doing good. And Paul's saying, take heart, don't, don't become weary. I can't tell you how often I meet with folks that will say, I'm tired, I'm exhausted of trying. How, how many times must I forgive? Is asked often. How long must I wait for this person to return and reconcile? over and over again. And this fear of not seeing the results we want sometimes gives way to us just not moving forward and continuing on. And Paul says, and God's spirit resonates, don't grow faint in the pursuit of doing good. The doing good is the sowing to the spirit, being a part of the things that cultivate his fruit in our lives and in the lives of others. Don't give in to evil. In fact, the, the, the clearest um, interpretation from the Greek to English would be um, uh, don't uh, grow weary or don't um, give into evil by discontinuing good because to stop the good would be evil is what the Galatians would have received when they would have read the letter. The word weary means that we relax in our faithfulness. Don't relax, he's saying. There's too much at stake. Don't lose heart in doing what is right and what is of the Spirit. So let's ask and test that then. Paul, why? Why should we not? Look at Galatians 9 again. He answers it. 
Let us not become weary in doing good. Why, Paul? For at the proper time, God's appointed time, the word proper would indicate, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. In fact, he speaks the same way to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Can we show that? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. People that are doing, and doing this sowing and doing this, this farming, of this spiritual farming, but only God who makes things grow. Verse 8. But the man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. God alone causes the growth. He is alone is the one that moves a heart. No one's ever debated in the kingdom by how smart you are, even though you give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ, First Peter tells us. The Holy Spirit's going to do that work as you step in with the Spirit to do his kind of work. And Paul's saying, press on. He's going to do the growth, but we get to receive the reward. That's grace. <laughs> we get to receive the reward for the work that he's doing and the work that we partner in with him. And let me just add this, that sowing and reaping is not karma. Do you, know, do you know the difference? And we have to stop on this because we live in a world where we live in a culture where people want to grab some, some philosophy from the West and some philosophy from the East. I'm going to make my own religion, and which means you're your God, which you might need to wear contacts, and why would a God need to wear contacts and have a body that's the king? The difference between karma and the rule of life, a rule of life of sowing and reaping, is that karma is the philosophy that we sow earthly seed and we reap earthly rewards in this life or the next try, which is never-ending. But God's word encourages us to sow to the Spirit so as to receive spirit rewards which are beyond earth and last for eternity. You need to know the difference in the world that we live in. And that's not, that's not karma, to receive spirit rewards for sowing spirit. That's grace. And we have to be persistent. We can't give up. And then, and then Paul tells us what it looks like to be a part of this. Look at it in verse 10, last verse. Therefore, in light of the rule of life, in a light of the reward that waits for those that will choose to sow to the Spirit and not be deceived in thinking that what they live, how they live doesn't matter, therefore, as we have the opportunity, as the, as the opportune time comes upon you, as specific opportunities come upon you is what this means, like preordained opportunities. Let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See, Paul's really getting at it as he began the beginning of chapter 6, which we didn't look at, 1 through 6. He concludes with it saying, okay, all this going to the Spirit and reaping the wards, you're going to have to be, participate in something. Something's going to have to be part of your life. And here's, here's what it is. The good, that, the good that to be done that has to be, uh, to be done requires one thing, and here's what it requires. You've got to be involved with people. <laughs> Sowing to the Spirit benefits others around us in internal ways, and sowing to our sinful nature deceives us into thinking that we're benefiting ourselves and others, but only destruction will be encountered. If we're going to sow to the Spirit and step forward to do God-sized things, it's always going to be involving other people. That's the tough part, right? Because we just don't like everyone. And then Paul says, especially to believers, like that would be the easy thing. But Jesus goes beyond that. Paul goes beyond that by saying, and to all people, like he'd write in Romans, to have be at peace with all people if possible. Then Jesus gets crazy and goes beyond that and says, and love your enemies, which just might be believers sometimes. Isn't that a shame? And family members or a spouse. So Paul's getting really practical. He says, if you want to sow to the Spirit, here's how you're going to do it. You're going to be engaged with other people. That's God's master plan of the local church. The family of believers equals church. 
and then to all people who you encounter in your sphere of influence at work and at play. Isn't it true that a great test of our love for God is our love for others? Have you ever heard this rule of life? They will know we are Christians. Yeah. And that kind of love, true love, only comes through us by the Spirit. It's a byproduct of Him. You will not have true love if you don't know Christ. It will not be yielding to another's best interest. It will be something of self-service, no matter what the movies tell you. It's always conditional. But Jesus, his isn't, and he wants to cultivate that kind of love in us. We are to do good and sow into the Spirit as expressed to others, especially believers, and then continually to all people. Will you bow your head and close your eyes, and I'll pray. I just want to ask you a few questions as I've been asking myself this last few weeks. Just some self-evaluation. No one's judging you. You judge yourself with the, with the help of the Lord. Questions. What are you sowing toward? What is it that you will reap? It should matter to us because it matters to God. Are you currently being deceived into thinking that God is fine with your sin? Are you hoping in your religious exercises or sowing to the Spirit so as to reap that which lasts for eternity? Are you growing weary? Don't, don't stop. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the promise of eternal rewards for those that sow to the Spirit. Help us. We need help with that. Lord, I pray for any friend that's here today that's got secret sin that they think you're cool with, Lord, that you would give them the courage and confront their heart to repent of that, to make that known to a friend that will journey with them through healing. Lord, I pray that you would bring reconciliation and that you would bring about forgiveness, that you'd bring about the kind of things that reflect your character. Lord, help us to sow wisely. Lord, keep us, please, from the deception that how we live doesn't matter, Lord. We know that you care about how we live. Your word tells us so over and over again. Help us, help us. Help us be the church that you want us to be. Lord, we would love to be used as an agent of life change, to build bridges of influence from this place to you, from this city to you. Lord, we just trust in you. Our hope is in you. We believe. Help us with our unbelief. Lord, help us take your word seriously. Give us a love for your word. May it be food to us. May doing your will be our nourishment. God, I just pray for each person here as they leave, Lord, that they would do serious work with you about what's ahead, what is the reaping that will be ahead, and then to trust in you for the proper time of harvest. Give those strength that are weary. Help those, Lord, that need to love more to love more. To those that need to forgive, give them the capacity to do it. Help them to trust in you. Meet them where they are, please, Lord. And we pray expectantly because of Jesus Christ. And in his name, amen.